This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Now You're Talking. It's a show about the most interesting people and stories in Mississippi, and I am your host, Marshall Ramsey. I am editor-at-large and editorial cartoonist with Mississippi Today. The 6888 Postal Battalion. It was the predominantly black, all-female battalion to serve. It was the only one to serve overseas during World War II, and it serves as a subject for filmmaker James William Theris' 2019 film, 6888, which will have a free screening tonight in Natchez. Well, well, we'll talk about it in just a second here as well. But anyway, that's tonight. And, it, and James is also an award-winning executive writer for the Department of Veteran Affairs in Washington, D.C., and joins us on this Veterans Day-centric episode to talk about the importance of immortalizing Mississippi veterans. James, number one, it's good to see you again because you were on the show about ten years ago. Yeah, it was ten years already. Yeah, yeah. And you know you haven't aged a bit, and I and I have, <laughs> and it, it's amazing. But it's good to see you again. Oh yeah. And I got to tell you how much I love this documentary because um, I always joke that my expertise on World War II means because I'm a middle aged dad. Yeah. And that's what we do. Oh, we really get into you either get into grilling or you get into World War II when you hit a certain age. <laughs> and, and I got into World War II. I had not heard this story. Mm. And um, I thought the documentary was fantastic, but I, I love it on so many different levels because it is, um, you know, it's, a, it's just these women were incredibly strong. And what they did was Herculean, the tasks they did, because they basically were assigned to get rid of a huge male backlog. And we'll get into the, some of the weeds on this, but the fact is they were African-Americans, so they, they had to deal with that being you know, discriminated against because of that. They were women. They had to deal with being discriminated because of that. And then they had an almost impossible task to do that not only did they do it, but they did it incredibly well. So great story. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Yeah, they... Uh you know, it was a two-year backlog, and, yeah. and um, the the army had tried men, but they needed men, you know, to yeah, fight. Yeah, they had tried um, uh, British civilians that just didn't have the passion for it. Yeah, and so also at the same time, he had Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, who wanted to make sure that um, African American women had a role. In winning the war. And she had Eleanor Roosevelt's ear. She did. Yeah. Yeah. Which Eleanor Roosevelt, for people that don't understand that, was a dominant force in the Roosevelt administration. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, she definitely <laughs> right. had, she had her husband's ear. Yeah. Well, yeah. she flew uh, She flew with uh, one of the Tuskegee airmen to show that they could fly. Yeah. And um, yeah, she played a, the, the two of them played a huge role in finding these women because they were the best of the best and they wanted to make sure um, that uh, they got a mission worthy. And they actually, the commander, Charity Adams, didn't find out about the mission until she was flying over in January of 1945. And they said, oh, you're going to clear this backlog of mail. So there was no training. There was military training. But when they hit the ground, they had to set everything up to, to handle this uh, backlog of mail. Well, tell us a little bit about you and what you've been up to for the last 10 years. Because like I yeah. said, you uh, we met on a veterans-related uh, show uh, mm -hmm. back 10 years ago. And uh, you, of course, that's your that's what that's your day job is, yeah. is you're you're dealing telling that that story as well. But you've you have cranked out some incredible films in that time too. Oh, thank you so much. So 
we met when I was a public affairs officer at the Jackson VA, and we talked about the Wall of Honor and yeah. things like that. And that was always that was great to come on and talk about that. And while I was here, I was going to Jackson State University, and that's where I landed. Uh, so I, I you're I, working on your master's. I was working on my master's. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I I, I ended up presenting uh, one of my professors this I was going to do something about the National Cemetery Administration he knew that's where I worked he said no that's too that's too easy for you you got to go find something else so I went back after I was here and I went back to, I was working in DC at the time and still kind of coming back and forth and working online with the professors and I went back and talked to a friend of mine and he said you know I spoke at a Memorial Day event in Natchez Mississippi and they the, the folks there tell me that they've been doing this march for over a hundred years. And I said, well, maybe that's worthy of it, right? So I started looking into it, talked to some people. Well, not over a hundred years. It was, when I did it in 2016, was the 150th anniversary of African-American folks in that region getting, getting together to celebrate black military service to the country. Wow. Yeah, and wow, it's still going. Wow, 150 years, yeah. And all my research indicates, uh, Marshall, they've been doing it every year since that time now it's had some different iterations the actual march which starts in vidalia over the mississippi river bridge and then up to the national cemetery it's almost five miles think new orleans style with bands and dancing and flags all over the place well they ended up uh, even through covid they just kept the tradition going and you know they mar they they, they drove and then they didn't go into the cemetery, but they drove to the cemetery to continue to honor their, their, their descendants and their current veterans. So, yeah, I ended up doing a film on that. It, Mississippi Public Television aired it in 2016, which was fantastic. And then the, uh, that was the bug that bit me. And I said, yeah, I li- as a historian, I like telling stories like this. That's a great, because like I said, every movie that you've done has told a story that everybody's like going, you know, I, I've, not, I've been doing this for a long time. And because I know Hello Girls is the same way. It was, And I love the beginning. I was watching one interview and they had all these famous people that were either in the military or they were in, you know, public figures and everything else going, I thought I knew everything and, and didn't know anything about these women that had gone over during World War One right. and done that. So, yes. How do you find the stories? Yeah, that's it. So. Jackson State, you know, that was my master's degree for 30th of May. And so we had, I had done a year's worth of film festivals and different screenings. And I was looking for a new story. And I like stories that have like significant anniversary dates. Yeah. So I knew the 100th anniversary of World War I was coming up. This is summer of 2017. So I did a Google search and I found this book, The Hello Girls. I want to do something on World War I. Mm-hmm. So then I, I said, well, I never heard of this. And uh, I contacted the, uh, the author on her author page, Elizabeth Cobbs, who wrote the book. And that very afternoon, as I was walking across the street to the White House deli, uh, <laughs> she called me. And she said, I'm going to be in D.C. in July. This was 2017. I'd love to sit down and do an interview. One thing led to another eight months later. We, uh, we world premiered at the um, Military Women's uh, Memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, and then it was on. And then it was, we probably did over 100 different screenings. November 11th, 2018, Marshall, you're talking to one person. There probably should have been a lot of others. Yeah. But I was in Chomo, France, General Pershing's headquarters, oh, wow. along yeah. with uh, Elizabeth and some of the others. And we had lunch at, they rolled out the red carpet. We had lunch at uh, General Pershing's former headquarters, which is still there. It's in the film. And then that night screened it to um, 
over 500 uh, Shomo citizens came out. And then later the next day, we, or two days later, we were in Paris and screened it there at the uh, American uh, American school there. So I mean, yeah. for people who don't know who General Pershing was, he was like, he was a huge deal. He was, I was just trying to think of a modern day uh, general that was as big as he was. He was just, he was I mean, he could have been elected president. I mean, people yeah. love the guy. And and I remember I was out in San Francisco and I saw the site of his former home, which burned. I think he'd lost part of his family because he of did. that. But he, you know, when um, I know when when George Marshall, for instance, was coming up, that he was one his mentor and so forth in World War II general. So he was a big deal. That's kind of cool. You got to do that. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, you, you mentioned and, and you know it's funny that one of the most important things for him after the war was he became the executive director, I think it's a different title now, of the American Battle Monuments Commission, yeah. which they uh, oversee all the foreign cemeteries. And he he led that effort because he wanted to make sure that Europe did not forget the 116,000 uh, men and some women who died during World War One, And so there's cemeteries all over uh, France for World War One, World War Two. And that was his big mission. And then he died, I think, right near the end of World War Two or a little bit after that. And he's buried at Arlington. Yeah, which, of course, it, you know, it, it's kind of appropriate that there are, what, three women from the the, the 6888 that are actually buried in Normandy, too. Right. So I thought that was kind of a neat touch, too. Yeah, died, died from a Jeep accident in 1945. And, so. and I think there's four women buried in that cemetery, and there are three of them are from 6888, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It crazy. is. It's incredible. So, like I said, the bugs, on the actual filmmaking part of it, how did you learn how to become a documentary filmmaker? Yeah. Because that's that's a challenge. It is. You know, it's it, it, it's... It's because I mean I always tell people I'm a historian first and a filmmaker second. Yeah. So that helps knowing um, the history and getting to getting to understand how to read and learn history quickly. Right. You know, and it helps, and I say too that it helps me cut through the chaff because you know sometimes you get so much information that overwhelms you. You want to do too much. Yeah. And so I'm able to cut. Uh, and find what the the right parts of the story to continue and advance the story. And so historian first, filmmaker second, and I hire good people too. I was about to say, because yeah. like for instance, the music is fantastic in, in, in the documentary and so forth. So yeah, and how do you find them? I mean, how do you find the good people? Because that's, that's sometimes a challenge in its own right. Yeah, you know, uh, I found my editor and, and uh, videographer on a thing called, uh, oh, it was online something salad, <laughs> you know? And I said, hey, I want to do a documentary. And he just happened to live maybe 10 miles from me in Alexandria. So I drove down there on my motorcycle. We sat down. I said, okay, I think you're the guy. And so we did it together and, and the la- my last two films. And the music actually is, is comes from a Russian composer. Oh, really? Yeah, who puts it online, and I pay him some royalties for that. Um, but, uh, yeah, Russian composer does great, great stuff. Yeah. yeah. It really was it, it was a really nice touch. How important, obviously, on Veterans Day is coming up. I, I mean, I'm all about it because, as an editorial cartoonist, I've always said that I couldn't do what I do if it weren't for veterans and the sacrifices they've made. They literally sign, it says, hand over a blank check to our country uh, when they give take the oath. I mean, it's so incredibly important. And, and, of course, we have had a lot of veterans produced in the last, you know, since 2001. It's hard to believe it's been that long. You were a veteran. Yes. Yeah. yeah. T- tell us a little bit about your service. Yep. Uh, joined uh, 1989. I was in 1989, 1996, Persian Gulf War veteran. Yeah. And... Um, uh, I got out. Uh, I had a back surgery, and so kind of when you when you can't compete that way, 
you yeah. have to uh you have to uh you know I decided to get out because it's very physical physical um occupation but uh yeah I I loved it you know and and but all of my films are always going to be veteran related because yeah. that's just who I am and what I want to do James I tell you what um this is a great story and like I said you love telling military stories obviously and of course we got veterans day coming up but like I said this is a story that like I said it kind of fell like between the cracks after the end of the war and for many different reasons how how did you come across yeah. it and how did you stumble across it so i was traveling with the hello girls across the country yeah and i remember exactly where i was i was at a film festival in sedona arizona and as at the q and a of the hello girls now yeah um someone came up to me and said hey have you heard of these uh, african american women from world war 2 now to be honest marshall people are always coming up to me boy do i got a great story right. for you right and so I put it in the back of my brain. About a month later, I was at the National World War I Museum in Kansas City with the Hello Girls. Someone came up to me again, same kind of approach. Have you heard of these women? And so now it kind of moves more forward in the front of my brain. Yeah. Well, then a month later in May, this probably would have been May of uh, 2018, I was, in my home, I was in Wisconsin at the War Memorial Museum in, uh, in Milwaukee, screening the Hello Girls, and someone came up to me and said the same thing. Now, it's third time, three times in three months, but then added this. Oh, by the way, one of the women is still alive and lives here in Milwaukee. You met her, Anna Mae Robertson, in the film. Yeah. And so that's when I said, okay, let's let, and thank goodness for Google, right? Because yeah. <laughs> normal research, National Archive research, I'd still be researching this film. But I, what I saw was is that there was a lot of stuff, a lot of photos, and individual interviews about the women, but nothing that told kind of the comprehensive from start to finish, uh, really at a higher level, but, you know, just to start to finish. So that's when I said, hey, I think I got something here. Let's 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 pursue it. You, you introduce us at the start of the film to their leader, um, Lieutenant Colonel Charity Adams Early, um, who is apparently a force or, or was a force of nature. Yeah. It, and I love it because you had like a C-SPAN thing and you could tell they were starting to get a little bit of, of love and recognition in the 90s because it was, it was a clip with her speaking before Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton's like, I don't know who booked me after her, <laughs> but I'm going to demote them. You know, it was just, it was this great moment where Bill Clinton's like really funny because he realized oh there's no way that he can be as charismatic and, and as strong as what she was. She was just incredible. What a great Bill Clinton that was. Thank Holy you. Uh, thank you. I, when I lived in San Diego, everybody said, I sounded like Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. so I, I kind of perfected it. A Absolutely, bit. Uh, yeah, she was, you yeah. know. And then when you know, so she served in, so she was the first um, graduate of the Women's Army Corps. Yeah, down at Fort Des Moines, Iowa. So um, that it was interesting, you know. That was integrated training at for the WACs, the Women Army Corps at yeah. Fort Des Moines. But then when they graduated, they were separated into this uh, predominantly black unit. There was a Puerto Rican unit. There was a, um, a, uh, a Japanese unit, and then an all white uh, unit. Yeah. And so they were segregated, but they trained together at at Fort uh, Fort Des Moines. And she she always said that she was the first graduate because her last name was Adams. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that, I guess that kind of makes sense. But yeah. So she she started out as of course second lieutenant, and in four years she became a lieutenant colonel, which is lightning speed. And very well-respected uh, military. And then, you know, what's great about these women is so many of them after the war 
became significant. And she she sat on a number of boards. Yeah. She worked for the VA for a while. I mean, she she was a force of nature. And her husband too was a doctor. He got his. Uh, he was in the war. He was an interpreter, and then um, he got his. Uh, became a a, a doctor. Uh, studied overseas in, in at uh, Luzerne or so, somewhere mm-hmm. in, in Switzerland. And then did his residency at the Harlem Hospital, and then they both moved back to Dayton, Ohio, where they spend the rest of their lives. Where they're, they're, they were a significant. You know, I hate to say power couple because they're a very humble couple, but yeah. they were that. They yeah. were that in Dayton. Oh, and you could just tell because I mean, number one, I mean, there were a lot of obstacles facing th- these these women as they were like number one. Uh, the African-American women had to, you know, they, they couldn't, they had to go up north to even get into the army at all. So, I mean, but then when they were, you know, in the south, they would deal with, with discrimination. And she would stand up to any officer who tried to discriminate, whether it was they were female or they were African-American. I mean, like I said, she she was not afraid to 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 use her rank because it was it was fascinating to me that people of lower rank were trying to push her around and she's like nah we're not going to be right doing that. that's yeah. not going to happen yeah well and and then she just she just i i think really understood that uh uh in the military rank means means something rank yeah. ca- comes with power and uh used uh, you know one of the best things i ever heard about military officers and I think she she exemplified that the most is that to be a really good officer, the most important thing you need is compassion, yeah. Because you're dealing with life and death in many ways. And I think she was a very compassion, excuse me, compassionate leader, passionate leader, and um, that really took her took her a long way. And I think at the end of the day, too, Marshall, sometimes it's, it's it's so great when you can see it, see it so clearly. It's either right or it's wrong. That's right. You know, and I think she saw those things. She saw that when she asked that question, is this is this discrimination right or wrong? It was so the the answer was always so clear that she knew that she that she could stand on the right side and she would take her lumps for it. But she did it anyways. She was also playing checkers when a lot of people play chess, because whenever (laughs) she got backed into a corner, she had two or three different ways out. It was just always fascinating, you know, because there's a couple of encounters where you talk about that in the film where she basically not only had, you know, I'm not I'm right because of my rank, but also because I'm right because I'm right, and this is why. Yep. So it was really impressive on that. And the mission that they had, I mean, this was toward the end of the war, and their motto was obviously no male, no morale. Right. Would you know that personally because I you do. were involved when you were in the Gulf War with the male as well. So, yes, that, that is important. Correct? Uh, well, yeah. You know, if I could use my own experience, yeah. you know, real quick. Uh, I was, you know, I remember the mail when we, when I got there in, in, in early October of 1990, uh, I remember the mail might be, be come, come to us in the back of a truck, small pickup truck or something. And then it was a big five ton truck. And then, you know, it'd come to us, we go get it. And then it was at a bigger warehouse. And then it was a bigger, warehouse. ultimately yeah. by the end of the war, we were getting so much mail that were, they, they were in these huge air force hangars. And we had to go down in trucks to pick our unit stuff up. Well, it was so important during the war, when it wasn't a very long war, of course, but during the ground war, right after the ground war, we had not gotten any mail for about three weeks. And, my, and I was kind of the mail guy for our unit. And my commander sent me down in a Black Hawk helicopter. I wasn't flying it. I was just riding in it. And he said, uh, Ferris, you go down and get the mail for the troops. That's how important it was yeah. uh, that we do that. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I always envisioned, like you were talking about that giant warehouse, and even with what they were facing was kind of like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark when, they, when they're when they pushing the Ark into yeah. this giant warehouse full of stuff. Right. 
I mean, so there was a backlog of six months or so. I mean, there was about 17 million pieces of, of mail. That, I mean, that's enough to make you get into the fetal position, even thinking <laughs> about trying to clean that up. And they did it. They had six months to do it. Yeah. And they did it in three. Right. Three months, 17 million pieces of mail. And I would I would say that even using modern tech now, they, and that's hand touching every single mail, every right. box. They didn't have machines like they didn't do today. They didn't have machines, right? Yeah. That's that's boxes that have been destroyed or eaten away by, by rodents yeah. that they would re. I mean, so they touched physically 17 million pieces of mail and got it out to the proper troops uh, within three months. I mean, it's amazing to think they did that. And a lot of the mail came over, as you saw in the film, uh, attention Johnny, 1st Infantry Division. Well, right. Who's yeah. Johnny? <laughs> exactly. There was no zip code on there. <laughs> right. so it, was, it, was, right. it was on tap. And so this was, um, you know, February of 1945. So yeah. this is, you know, after D-Day. Yep. They're in Europe. So troops are pretty much scattered all around Europe at this point, too. Yeah. So their mission was even that much more difficult. They had to be able to get it and out to different areas on that. And so they were able to get it wrapped up and get the stuff out there before the end of the war. Yeah, before. And they had completed their their Birmingham, England mission yeah. uh, right after uh, the, you know, the not the, I don't want to say armistice thing in World War II, but after the German uh, surrender. Yeah. So then... Um, they moved uh, to Rouen, France, where they were going to pick up the same mission, but the war was over now, yeah. so it wasn't much of a priority. But some of the women were also preparing to go to the Pacific. Oh, wow. Right. Yeah. And, that when, and then that war, uh, of course, ended in, in, in August of uh, 1945. So then they started matriculating and processing home. The last of the women came home in probably March of 1946. Yeah, to Fort Dix, Fort New Dix, Jersey. Fort Dix, New Jersey, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, when you kind of come home piecemeal, when I think of our return from the Persian Gulf War, we came home as a unit. The World War II uh, folks normally came home as a unit. But when you kind of come home piecemeal and you're mustered out individually, there's no parades, you yeah. know, to attend. There's no... Um, uh, and so they, they kind of were uh, lost to history, their mission, although it was as important a mission from a morale perspective right. as there is in the Army. Right. I, you just touched on it. It's really about morale because when you're in the foxhole, you're fighting for the person next to you and you're fighting for your, your family back home. That's right. And if you're not hearing from them. And they're not hearing from you. Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. They don't know if, yeah, because exactly. Letters going out. Yeah. And so um, you saw there the, the one senator from Kansas, Jerry Moran, got emotional talking about how important That's right. the mail was to keep his mother, his father fought in, throughout the war for four years. And uh, he now knows who made sure that they were able to stay connected during that whole war. So, um, yeah, you hear a lot more about that now from families that I hear from families that say, hey, you know what, now I know who connected my mom and dad during the war. We're talking with James Harris. The The film is 6888. You're going to have a free screening tonight in Natchez at yeah. 6 p.m. Where is it going to be at? At the uh, Museum of, of uh, uh, African American History and Culture in, in Natchez, nice. right downtown Natchez, mm -hmm. yep. And so that's going to be a great event. Uh, screened the 30th of May there several years ago. So looking forward to going back. Ah, big week. Veterans Day is coming up uh, this weekend as well. So we have a Veterans Day themed show, and we're we have James William Theris with us. He's producer and director. It's a documentary. It's the Six Triple Eight, uh, an incredible story of 855 prim uh, 
predominantly African-American women who basically sorted out a huge mess of mail uh, and helped morale uh, pop back up during World War II. And the fact there is actually a pretty good-sized Mississippi connection to this as well. 20 20 20. of the 855 women were from Mississippi. That's wonderful. It is. And uh, of that that, uh, 20, uh, six of them are buried in Mississippi. Oh, wow. One of them at the Natchez National Cemetery, uh, Louise Rita Bruce. Yeah. Uh, later this afternoon, we're going to lay a wreath at her gravesite at Natchez. And then five others are within the area, one in Hines County. And then there's six others that are bar- that were from Mississippi buried outside of the state, of which two others, two of them are buried at, also at national cemeteries. One, uh, Sophia Easterling at Fort Logan and Essie Mae Jackson at uh, Fort Logan's in Colorado and at Sacramento Valley, Essie uh, Mae Jackson. So, you know what I found, uh, uh, Marshall, is that what's really cool is that, you know, when they came back, it wasn't so much that, you know, they, they, there was still the struggle of getting VA benefits. A lot of the women got took advantage of the GI Bill. Yeah. Uh, not so much the home loan. There was obstacles yeah. there that we, you know, that are evident without even saying. But one of the great things that I found in doing my research of where the women are buried is many of them, and I'm talking maybe three, four hundred of them, used VA burial benefits of the eight, uh, almost fifty percent. Oh, that's so grim. yeah, by the, buried in a national cemetery, a state veteran cemetery, or have a headstone and marker from the VA. So, um, you know, working for the National Cemetery Administration during the day job, I'm really happy to see that that and they so, got the benefits and the rights that they deserve exactly yeah definitely and they definitely did deserve it absolutely I mean, and you know the unit itself is getting the recognition it deserves now too yeah well you know uh there was the monument we talked about in 2018 then the documentary came out in 2019 a little bit slower during covid but we were working on the congressional gold medal mm-hmm. which uh march of 2022 uh president biden signed into law Oh, fantastic. Uh, and so they, That's a big deal. Huge. Uh, yeah. So to put it in perspective, since the beginning of the country, uh, there's only been there's been less than 200 of them given to individuals or organizations. George Washington got the first one. Since then, you've got uh, my boyhood idol, Roberto Clemente had one. General Pershing got mm-hmm. one. Uh, the hidden figures women, the the young the, the the young ladies that were killed in Alabama at the church bombing got one tuskegee airmen monford point marines so they're in some very elite distinct company now with regard to the congressional gold medal and very uh, definitely definitely earned every bit of it oh yeah definitely and even this year in april of 2023 fort lee virginia was renamed fort greg adams now lieutenant general arthur greg is still alive he's african-american general vietnam era guy uh 94 he is and the Adams piece is named after Charity Adams, the commander of the 6888. So she is the only uh, black female to have an army post named after her. That's fantastic. I did not catch that. That's incredible. Yeah, I forgot to put that. I forgot to. Uh, uh, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about that because that just happened. Yeah. Big event. So if you, if you Google Fort Greg Adams, you will see that. That's I wonder what, what her was. reaction would have been to it. You know, her son was there, and yeah. her son is uh, very, very much uh, like her, and her father very humble. Yeah, I think, I think if I were to get in, just knowing, reading her book and knowing of her, I think she would have 
um, been very surprised, been very happy, but would have deferred to the women and to the unit and what they accomplished and, and would have. And I, I think, think that's fair. Yeah. I think that's fair. I think she would yeah. have said, I'd be happy to represent them if that's what it if that's what it takes to get the recognition for what my, my women did. Yeah, and what they did was incredible. Yeah, I th- I think one of the another interesting part about the film and their story is the reaction of the people in Birmingham to them and where they they stayed and so forth in that story, and then them going to France. I, I just, you know, in some ways at that time they were treated better in England and France than they were back in in our own country. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You yeah. know, I I think I think. Uh, um, you know, when they got to Birmingham, I think there was a uniqueness. I think yeah. we talk about in the film, uh, the one gentleman from from uh, England that I interviewed there, um, and that uh, for the most part, I you know, I, I think when you're that close to the war, yeah, you know, you kind of, whatever you know they say what do they say about foxholes. There's no atheists in foxholes, right? Yeah, kind of the same thing. There's no you know all that enmity you may have as a citizen, kind of goes away when you're at. In a war zone? When the V-1 bombs and the V-2 bomb mm-hmm. rockets are landing all around you. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that goes away. And so I think the the British, uh, I, I think to see to see a, such a large unit and large contingent yeah. of African-American women was also very unique. Would have been unique. And it was unique to American soldiers, too. You know, they, they were like, what's this? Well, what's this unit all about? And so, uh, yeah, that that's uh, that's of course disappointing in, in our own nation's history mm-hmm. but they fought through it they went over there and they came back and and many of them came back and worked hard for civil rights yeah definitely you know? yeah and you know and you saw that too with medgar evers you know he had fought over in europe and then he came back yeah. and obviously and so forth and i don't blame them by far for doing that when you look at um the mission that they did and how tough it was and important how did i mean how did it work what was the what was I mean, how do you when you sit there and, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, <laughs> which is exactly what they did. They really came up with an interesting way to be able to attack it. They did it in shifts. They did it in shifts. They had three eight hour shifts, seven days a week. Um, now, it's important to remember, too, that they were a standalone battalion, which means that they didn't get necessarily a lot of support from other units. Uh, so they had their own mechanics, they had their own MPs, they had their own cooks. Uh, these were women that would do this in addition to the sorting duties. Yeah. So they 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 kind of stood alone. So when you and they played softball and they played <laughs> softball and they played basketball and they went bowling, and they were great at it and all of that. Yeah. So very. A unit couldn't do that today. The only standalone units in the military now these days are the special forces guys. You know, yeah. when they go out there, they're by themselves. But a standalone battalion of that size, 855 women, would have all kinds of support these days. And they did it. All, they did all of it. They did all of it. All of it. Wow. How, how did they get picked for that mission specifically? Yep. Uh, so you, so. You know, Dr. Mary Mc. We talked about yeah, her. Yeah, talked about bit. her. Yeah, yeah. And so she, she of course had traveled throughout the country. She knew a lot of these women. Yeah. Uh, from her travel, you know, to different universities, and so uh, when they, when it was time to find a role for African American women in World War II, um, she worked with Eleanor Roosevelt, and she knew of these women. So these women were the best of the best. They were the best of the best. Many had college degrees already. Yeah. And so uh, 
they were chosen for that. They were all, many were already in the women's army corps. Yeah. And so uh, high performers within the wax is what they called it. Um, were chosen as well. So they were the best of the best. The Women's Army Corps. And it, you talk a little bit about it. I didn't realize that, number one, that women all wore the patch until yeah. 1978. Yeah. that's That wasn't that long ago. I mean, no. it may be ancient history to some folks, but to us, that wasn't that long ago that women were still kind of separated out of... Uh, it's hard to believe now when you see how integrated the army and the, the military is i'll tell you uh, an interesting story she she doesn't like me because it, it, it kind of gauges her age but my producer edna cummings is a retired full colonel and when she got her first commission she was in the women's army corps really yeah yeah so so there's that direct connection there you yeah. know i mean you know one of my producers was in the women's army corps so women were still yeah. fighting for their rights even up until the, until the late 70s absolutely yeah and oh. and just to, you know there it was this whole separate corps and they might end up doing different jobs they might end up working in intelligence they might end up working yeah. in signal corps and it wasn't until after that they said okay well we're just going to identify them in the same branches that men are in so that's when the Women's Army Corps went away, and then they were assigned branches, just like the men were. You had a an ad. I, I don't even know if what it was for, a film of two guys sitting on the porch going, mm. that's man's work. Yeah, yeah. War is man's work. Right. You know, I yeah. just thought that was fascinating. Like I said, you did some really nice touches with some of the, the past uh, film interviews. You, you've also dug up a bunch of older interviews, too, as I well did. that, because you kind of had to do that, obviously. Yeah, Library Congress, I stumbled across that. There's probably 19 of them there, and I went through all of them and kind of found what I thought were the ones that best fit uh, the storyline in. So and I found even more since you know some are not at the Library of Congress but there's one at the uh, Historical Museum in Detroit there's one down at University of Charlotte oh wow yeah, yeah. so and there's more out there uh, Marshall yeah. you know there's 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 boxes and and maybe we go down to Natchez and 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 you know the families down there that are buried might might say hey that's my relative you know and here's her here you know that's the thing about mississippi is that what i found on the 30th of may is that when when you start talking about and folks you know you gain their trust they'll say hey i want to show you something then they'll open up this trunk and then you know there's my grandfather's <laughs> world war one uniform you know and, and so there's a lot of great historical um archives and I loved it, too, because it's like not only that we as viewers learned a little bit more about how incredibly these women were, their kids did, too. Yeah. I thought that was great. Well, you know, uh, that's the one thing that the women did um, when they came back and, and many went back and they, they worked them way, they worked their way, like all, many Americans, into yeah. the middle class, right? Yeah. They got their education. They became administrators, nurses, doctors, all kinds of things, and it passed on to their family. I, I know one family— uh, whose whose mother is buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Now, there's 14 of the women buried 14. at Arlington. And um, she had four daughters, and all four of her daughters yeah. are PhD, have PhDs and, ha you know, significant members of their community and researchers and administrators. So that throughout that, they're the next generation of, of family, um, you know, uh, got that leg up from their service, which which is great to see. 
when you're when you put together a film like this, obviously you you want it to be seen because you got to get the story out there. And like you said, when when it is seen, then that helps the story advance and it gets it grows and continues on that as well. Where all have you screened the film oh. since it's been out? Because yeah. obviously you released it like a year before the pandemic hit, so that obviously made life a little bit more difficult for you. Yeah, uh, National World War II Museum. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the Military Women's uh, Memorial mm-hmm. again. That two years in a row, I world premiered a film there, um, April of uh, 2019. In May of 2019, we were invited. My team, we were invited over to England by the U.S. Ambassador Robert Wood Johnson at that time. Nice. Yep. And they sent they set up screenings throughout the U.K. for us and travel. We traveled all over through the U.K. Um, yeah, lots of universities, uh, Yale University. Uh, 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 U.S. Army War College, uh, all, all, you know, lots and guy over a hundred different film festivals. We were just at the Detroit Black Film Festival where, where we won Audience Choice Award, and so um, yeah, the story's getting out there. In fact, a guy came up to me the other day in Memphis. I was staying in Memphis two nights ago, and he saw this shirt. And he said, hey, I heard of them in that documentary. And this was a guy that was a valet. And that's when, you know what? That's when you know that you're reaching when just normal people uh, you meet are coming up to you and say, I heard, I've heard about them, yeah. which is great. Yeah, I'm definitely going to share this story because I think it's just such a great, you know, like I said, I, I, I love a good World War II story. And this is not one that I'd ever heard. And it's, it's one that I think is worthy of telling because it just shows you what we as a country are capable of when we, when we get together and do the right thing. You're listening now. You're talking on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Marshall Ramsey, and I'm back with James William Therese. He's producer, director of the documentary 6888 that will be screening tonight in Natchez, Mississippi at 6 p.m. as well. And once again, where at? The uh, Museum of African American History and Culture in Natchez, downtown Natchez. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that it's really be fun. And, uh, you know, like I said, because of your history uh, with your masters and, and so forth, Natchez, is, it's good for you to be able to go back. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of my favorite cities. And it's so good to have you back in Mississippi, too. Uh, I, I always tell people, people look at me sometimes like I'm crazy. I say I miss, I miss Mississippi uh, more than anything. What's the thing you miss the most? I, you know what? The I humidity, miss, right? Yeah, the humidity and the heavy heat and the sweating. But, you know, one thing that I always was able to do when I was down here yeah. is jump on my motorcycle on a Saturday morning and I could ride anywhere kind of, you know, without without interruption yeah. because the roads were wide open. And when I took my motorcycle to D.C., I <laughs> rode it the first year. And then for the last seven, I never rode it because it was just too hard to get out of the city. Yeah. And... uh I just I miss the hospitality down here. You, I miss, you know people saying hello to you that don't even know you. Uh, just the kindness. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I miss it. Well, I, I'm coming back one day good. to live. Would love to have you back. Uh, what stories did you like telling while you were down here? So my my big project that I was real proud of was getting that wall of honor going. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, you know our first class in, inducted Medgar Evers and and Ms. Merle Evers was there to induct him and Charles Evers was inducted. Ari Washington, Dr. John Peoples from Jackson State, the former president, was inducted that first class. So really launching that at the Jackson VA uh, was uh, my my biggest achievement here, uh, you know, at the, as a public affairs officer. And I really enjoyed doing that. And the people really took to it. 
So now you are you're still doing it, but you're obviously getting to work from home. So you're yeah. not in, you're not in D.C. anymore. So yeah, so I switched agencies from healthcare into the National Cemetery Administration. Yeah. So I'm still doing public affairs for them. Okay. Uh, I left here and went and did a speechwriter uh, work for for about four years, and then migrated back to public affairs, which is really where my love is. Yeah. And so, yeah, doing doing that type of work and telling stories. And I just finished manage editing the um, our 50th anniversary special edition uh, magazine. Uh, 1973, September 1st was when NCA became an official administration. So we actually go back to 1862, yeah. you know, with Lincoln. But uh, uh, as far as from the government perspective, us being an administration, that's dated to September 1st, 1973. So we did a 50-year look at that. And, and you know what, Marshall, I'll tell you a secret. I included a photo from the 30th of May in there. Oh, nice. I included in our timeline Melina Olive Shaw, who's buried at Massachusetts. And then we did a whole feature on Dolores Rudock, who's buried at Baltimore National Cemetery, uh, who's a member of the 6888. So... I've never said that publicly, but people internally know that those are my three films. And I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, but the significant stories, you know, I mean, they're all part, yeah, all part of National Cemetery stuff. And, you know, diversity was a big thing for me when we were doing this story, men, women, and then all the different generations and and different um, uh, races of people that serve. So, so that was all part of it. Definitely. And like I said, they're all stories that needed to be told. Yes. It's incredibly important. So what are you working on next? You know, I so I got uh, Civil War era, right? I've got World War One, World War Two. I think I just came across a story that I might want to pursue about a Vietnam War veteran who oh. served uh, from Wisconsin, who served at the height of the Tet Offensive in 1968. Came back and was very successful in his career, and then later in life, he went he went back to Vietnam and he built four libraries for the community in which he served. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Over there. Um, and not traditional brick and mortar, like like we think. These mm-hmm. are more uh, up on, you know, uh, like you would see down at the coast, you know, those type of houses that are elevated. Oh, yeah, up on yeah, stilts. Up mm-hmm. on stilts. And he built four of those. And I just thought, wow, what, that's very interesting that he would do that. And so What I've, drove him to do that? Yeah, exactly. I don't yeah, know. Don't know, yeah. I don't, you know, I, he, he wanted to give back. But I don't really know exactly why he did it. He's got a website, and I've looked at it, and he talks about doing it. But the big question is why? Why? Yeah. Why? You want to give the gift of education? I think so. Yeah, I think so. It's incredible. You know, you talk about the Vietnam, uh, the guys that were in Vietnam. Of course, they didn't. And I, I talk. I've talked to my father-in-law, who was a pilot during Vietnam, which um, he he had two, two two tours over there on two different aircraft. But he said coming back, he said you know he would fly in through San, San Francisco and literally the people would spit on him and that sort of thing. And these guys just did, did not get the respect that they deserved because the war was so politicized. Yeah. But it's amazing now the numbers of Vietnam veterans are now fading in history as mm. well. It's yeah. just it's just incredible because you know World War Two and in Korea we kind of expect you know obviously that most of them are close to 100 years old, yep. but Vietnam guys are in their 80s or right. seven, late 70s and, and early 80s. So it's um, it's we're losing those guys awfully quick. You know, in in our lifetime, um, we're going to read this headline: "Last World War II Veteran Dies Today." Yeah, we'll probably read along that same timeline that last Korean War veteran dies today, and then by the time we read that in 10 or 15 years, maybe 10 years, maybe. 
will be will be down to a small number of uh, a small well no a number of Vietnam veterans. So yeah, you know those those three wars um, who we respect very much have gone. And you know what we talked about the the people getting together. You know uh, that you talked about. Mm-hmm. That's one thing, uh, Marshall. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. Right now, um, you know, because even as bitter as Jap- as the Pacific War was, at, years after the war, Americans and Japanese were able to come together and shake hands. Say, "You fought for country. Uh, yeah. I fought for mine." I can do that with the Iraqis, but I don't think our 2003 forward men and women can do that because they're not fighting against states right they're fighting against ideology exactly yeah so it's i don't think more. they'll ever be able to shake the hands of a former al-qaeda member or isis yeah. member and that uh that reconciliation i think is 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 a sad way to end it which is why i want to do this vietnam story because it is about reconciliation in right. some way why he did that yeah, and, and it's healing, and for the sense for him and for the country as well on that. Yeah, because you know? like I said, uh, I've talked to many different veterans who have been able to go back to country and, and go meet the people and so forth, and so very powerful as well. Uh, the next project, like you said, you're thinking about doing that as well. And like I said, when you when you sit down and say, okay, it's time for me to come up with this project. How do you pull the trigger? How do you go? You know, it's 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 always about. Uh, it starts with talking. I mean, I, so where I live in Wisconsin, the house next to me is Airbnb. Yeah, and I got to talking to that <laughs> yeah. guy, and he was the one that told me about his Vietnam veteran friend okay. that did this, and then handed me a bunch of information and about him and and his contact information. So I'll just start with the research end of it, and uh, you know, see where it goes, and then at some point in time, I'll I'll make that decision. Uh, to do it, and then I'll start finding a video, videographer and all that type of stuff. So it sounds like the secret of to do what you do is to be very curious. Be very curious, absolutely, and the historian piece, yeah. you know? I just love history, and I, I love telling stories about veterans who, whose stories are stuck, you know, in the nooks and crannies of history, not the big stories. Real quick, uh, tell us a little bit how they can find out more about you and about the film. LincolnPennyFilms.com is where all three of my films are, short bio about myself, uh, and that's where, that's where you can go. Well, I hope that we can have this conversa- another conversation, and it is in another decade. Right. Yeah. I'm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was... <laughs> Although we have a lot to catch up on. A lot has happened in the last 10 yeah. years, but you have produced three amazing films. And thank you so much for sharing about 6888 and sharing a story that honestly uh, really makes me want to find even out more about these women. Wonderful. And thanks. It's so great to be back. I was so excited. All right. If uh, Thank you for listening and special thanks to our guests for joining me today. And if you'd like to hear this or any past episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app on our MPB public media app. Now You're Talking is a production of MPB Think Radio with episode and podcast produced by Lacey Alexander. Join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. I'm Marshall Ramsey. I hope you all have a great week. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB public radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. 